are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. 1 Kings chapter 20, and I want us to look together beginning at verse number 27. It says, And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and were against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids, but the Syrians filled the country. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. I want us to look at that one statement that was made here that the man of God said. He said, The Syrians have said that God is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. I'd like to speak to you tonight on that subject, God of the valleys. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and ask that tonight you would meet our needs with all of our hearts who want to be a blessing. And Lord, I pray that you'll fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit of God this evening. May I speak those words that would be an encouragement to the folks here. May I say the things that would be pleasing to you. And Lord, may I speak as if you were standing right beside me, for in essence you are in reality. And Lord, may the folks respond with the invitation. Save those who may be here tonight without the Lord. And Lord, for the folks that are saved and they love you, but they find themselves in need tonight, meet their needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been to them. I've been there. We don't like it. Word comes to us over a long-distance telephone call, or perhaps someone comes over and knocks on your door, and you learn of the death of someone. Tony walked outside the funeral parlor where lie the body of his brother, his life tragically taken in a car accident. He turned to my aunt who was standing next to him, who was also his aunt. We're not related directly, but related sort of indirectly through her. You see, Tony and his brother had been attenders of a good fundamental Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Baptist church. He and his brother had regularly gone out soul-winning together. He and his brother attended every service, especially all the revival meetings, which really thrilled their hearts, where they were both saved. And he turned to my aunt as he walked outside the funeral parlor, and he said to her, If God would let something like that happen to my brother, then I want no part of him any longer. And as I stand here tonight, that young man now resides in Texas, and to my knowledge, unless something has happened just very recently, he has kept that vow he made to my aunt some years ago now. He has not stepped inside the doors of a church of any kind. Why? I'll tell you exactly why. He had forgotten one minor detail that we sometimes sweep under the rug. God is the God of the good days, but He's also the God of the bad days. Amen? I finished a Wednesday evening service there in Newington. Had a good service, and God was there and had a sweet, refreshing spirit. As I walked to the back, one of the ushers came and said, Pastor, there's a long-distance telephone call waiting for you in your office. They've been on the phone for about five minutes waiting for you to finish. Could you take the call now? And I went there quickly. And there on the other end of the line was the trembling voice of Dr. Winnegar, uh, president of Maranatha Baptist Bible College. He said, Wally. I said, yes, sir. 
He said, can you talk? I said, yes, sir. He said, would you sit down for a moment? I sat down on the uh, chair behind my desk, and of course my heart began to race because I could tell from the urgency of his voice something was wrong. He said, Brother Davis, tonight, he said, something tragic has taken place. He said, uh, Terry Gustafson, who is a member of your church, on the way to prayer meeting tonight, was involved in an automobile accident, and her life has been taken. He said, I'm here at the hospital now with some of the young people that were involved, and he said, uh, they're okay. He said, but Terry's gone. He said, would you please tell her mom and dad? You don't know the heart of a pastor. Perhaps you can imagine. I went out and tried to find Mr. and Mrs. Gustafson, and one of the ushers said, Pastor, I think they've already uh, gotten in their cars and have left. I said, would you run and try to catch them? They went out and flagged them down and said, Pastor needs to speak with you. And I would imagine as they received word that they felt a little bit concerned because it's unusual for that kind of thing to take place. They came in and sat down in the office and sat down across the uh, desk from me. And I looked at Brother Gustafson and Mrs. Gustafson, and I would have have rather cut off my right arm than have to talk to them. Terry was their only daughter. What a wonderful, sweet Christian lady she was. She helped us in our daily vacation Bible school as peewee, and the kids loved her. And she worked in the Sunday school department, and uh, she was engaged to be married that next summer. And I reached out and took Mrs. Gustafson's hand in mine, and I said, Mrs. Gustafson, I don't know how to tell you this except just to let you know I got a call from Dr. Winnegar. There's been an accident, and Terry's gone home to be with Jesus. She died in a car accident. And she looked at me, and she looked at her husband, and the tears welled up in her eyes, and she looked back at me, and she says, Pastor, she said, Praise God, Terry was saved. You know, I said, Praise the Lord. We had that kind of a reaction. She did not stand and walk outside the doors of the church and turn to her husband in a grieving atmosphere and say, if God would do something like that, there our young daughter was at Bible college preparing to go into full-time Christian service, marrying a young man that's been called into the ministry, had surrendered her life, had worked in the Bible uh, school, had taught in Sunday school class, and now her life has been taken. If that's the kind of God that's up there in heaven, I want no part of him. Thank God she did not do what Tony said, but she realized that God, yes, is the God in the good days. He's the God on the pinnacle. He's the God on the skyscraper. He's the God on the horizon, but he's also the God in the valley. As I speak to some folks here tonight, you have, or you are presently, or you will go through heartache. That's not something that's a maybe. That's something that is absolutely for sure. Two months after my wife and I were married, Received a telephone call at 2 o'clock in the morning. Every pastor in the world despises the telephone to be ringing at 2, 3, or 4 in the morning. Not because we have to wake up, but because it's most generally always a bearer of some kind of grief. We had no phone in those days. We were working as assistant pastor in a small struggling church, making about $75 a week, and uh, we couldn't even afford the uh, price they charged you to put the phone in, let alone pay for it after it was on the wall. And uh, my father had always threatened to tear it off the wall anyhow, and I thought I'd save myself the aggravation. And uh, so Mrs. Huff upstairs received the phone call. She came down, uh, and she said, Woo-hoo! Wally! And I said, Well, 2 o'clock in the morning, what's Mrs. Huff hollering for? She did that oftentimes, but not that time of the day. And she said, uh, she said There's a telephone call. She says, I think it's, I think it's your mother or your mother-in-law. And so uh, I quickly ran to the telephone None near the end of the line was the trembling voice of my mother-in-law. She said, Wally, could you come home immediately? She said, there's been a tragic fire and Shirley's daddy has been killed. I had to go back down those stairs and tell my bride of two months that she no longer had a daddy. 
And I remember walking down the stairs, or a good number of them leading from the place where I took the call back down to the basement apartment where we were. And as I walked back down, I said, Lord, how can I tell my wife this? What am I going to say? And she, of course, kind of sensed that something was wrong, was awake when I came back into the room and held her in my arms. And I said, Honey, I've got some bad news to tell you. I said, Your father's been killed in a fire this evening. And we wept and hugged and embraced and got in the automobile and drove down to where the accident had taken place. Went inside the hospital there and they said, We can't make positive identification and uh, one of you are going to have to come in and try to identify the charred body. And I looked at my brother-in-law, Randy, and he looked at me and he said, Wally, I don't think I can go in there, do you? I said, Randy, I don't know if I can do it or not either. And uh, my mother-in-law said, well, wait a minute. She said, he had a ring he always wore. It had his initials LB on it. She said, did you find a ring? They said, we searched the body. We couldn't find anything, but let us go back and check again. They came back out in a few moments and they had the charred ring uh, disfigured from the fire. They had his initials on it. And they said, you'll not have to go in and look. This will suffice to identify the remains of Mr. Nugent. You'll never know the heartache that we went through. But you know... My wife, through all those times, of course there's heartache, as you might understand. Of course there's trouble, as you might understand. But she did not go bitter. She did not say, well, listen, here I am serving God. My husband's in full-time Christian service, and we're trying to exist in a meager amount of a income, trying to make ends meet, and we've given ourselves, and if this is the kind of God I have, I want no part of it. You and I all know of men and women that have done that. But thanks be to God, the Lord gave me a sweet wife that realized that God, yes, is the God of the mountain. And yes, he's the God of the hilltops. And yes, he's the God on the pinnacle. But he's also down there in the valley when you know not know, know not which way to turn and know not which direction to walk. He's also down there in the bottom of the pits when you can't stand to lift your eyes upon another horizon of another day. God is the God of the valleys, regardless of what the Syrians may say. Tony, you're wrong to turn your back on God because your brother went home to be with him. We know not the reason behind that, but you're wrong. Christian friend, you're wrong to turn your back on God just because things don't happen to go your way. You say, now, preacher, does that mean I'm not a good Christian if I have little relapses of discouragement? Does that mean that I'm not a very good Christian? No, it just means that you find yourself in the company of some of the most famous Christian figures that the Bible's ever recorded. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts chapter 16? I want you to see what to me is a marvelous story. I love to tell it because it always encourages my own heart. Acts chapter 16 and beginning at verse number 16. It came to pass as we went to prayer... A certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. Wait a minute. Here the Apostle Paul is going out preaching the Word of God. This little girl tagging on and saying, Hey, everybody, listen. This is the man of God preaching the Word of God. Listen to this man. How many preachers would be angry at someone saying amen like that? Well, it was not that kind of spirit in which she was saying those things. I related the story how that when I was preaching in Bound Brook, New Jersey, I noticed you have DeWitt Talmage out here. 
uh, on your uh, Hall of Fame out here. He was born in Boundbrook, New Jersey. And it was a little storefront church out there and had windows that opened up onto the street. Well, I was standing there preaching to a group of about 35 or 40 people. About uh, 10 or 15 teenagers had gathered out there and were saying, Woo! Amen! Glory to God! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! But they, you say, what's wrong with that? I wish folks inside the building would have been doing that uh, in the right kind of fashion. But they were mocking. And that's what this girl here was doing. She was mocking. And so Paul says, hold it. I can't take it anymore. And so he wanted a Christ. Cast out the demons. She got saved. She turned in her uh, union card to those masters. And she said, I'm not going to do this any longer. You can take my picture off the star ledger. I don't want to be on the, on the uh, grocery store uh, list anymore making predictions of who's going to die and who's going to get married and who shot J.R. and who killed W.F. and all the rest that kind of junk I just quit well it made those guys angry and the apostle Paul and Silas found this kind of a situation hear me what did they do wrong see right away when something happens to somebody we say well what went wrong what did that man do uh, the reason that pastor's got trouble or the reason that deacon's got trouble or the weekend the reason that brother in Christ has trouble they've done something wrong more times than not it's because they've done something right the Apostle Paul had just been preaching the Word of God. Folks were getting saved. And what happened? It says here that they, when they had, um, in verse number 20, they brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them. Oh, man, alive, that right there shows they were wrong. Right? Just because a big number of folks accuse them of being wrong? The honest truth is this. As long as we are in the minority in this world before Jesus comes back to rule and reign with a rod of iron, the multitude will always be against what you and I are doing right now. It's not an if situation. That is a sure thing you can bank on, as they used to say. And the multitude rose up and they said, Get rid of these guys. We don't want them teaching in the name of Christ around here any longer. The Apostle Paul and Silas, I imagine they kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, Man, all I'm doing is trying to serve the Lord and doing my best to be the right kind of a Christian and preaching and evangelizing, casting devils out of demon-possessed folks. What am I doing wrong? I know God's going to award me for something. I cast the devil out of somebody and God's going to send me a brand new Cadillac chariot. No, it's not what happened. And by the way, the honest truth is, that's not the way it usually turns out. What took place? It said the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes. They walked over and ripped their clothes off of them. How about you? That'd be embarrassing to me. I mean, if I got called into a court of law and somebody says, this guy's preaching, listening to, and, uh, and the judge says, that makes me mad, walked over and ripped off my clothes, that'd be humiliating enough right there. Then it goes on and says, after they rent their clothes off of them, commanded that they be beaten. Look at verse number 23. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison, made their feet fast in the stocks, and at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. You say, boy, they were good Christians. Wait a minute. Let me bring something to your attention you may not have caught. When they were accused of casting the devil out of that woman, they were in the marketplace. A great crowd assembled to watch them get their beating. 
The marketplace usually closed, and it was the custom to close, by 6 o'clock in the evening. And nobody was around. If this would have happened after the marketplace incident, there would not have been a great multitude there to watch it. So we know that sometime before 6 o'clock, this occurred. It could have happened at 11 o'clock in the morning. The Bible does not say. But we know that the latest it could have been was 6 o'clock at night. And the Bible says they were beaten. Their heads and their hands were thrust into a stockade. They were bound with chains. The doors were shut. A guard was set over the door, and they were thrown in prison. You say, what did they do? You say, well, preach. They just started praising God right away. No, they didn't. The Bible says at midnight they praised God. What took place between 6 o'clock and midnight? I'll tell you what took place between 6 o'clock and midnight. Silas looked over at Paul and said, look what kind of mess you've got me into. And Paul says, oh, shut up. I heard. And the flies were all mingling around on those open sores where they were beaten with probably the same kind of things that Christ was beaten with, the cat of nine tails. And uh, their hands were locked there. They couldn't even scratch where they itched. They couldn't move their head to shake the flies uh, out of their faces and uh, to wipe the, uh, wipe the insects off of their uh, running sores. They were locked. And they were, they were in misery. But I want you to see something. It was not until 12 o'clock at night that they finally says, hold it, we're backslidden. And Silas said, well, I don't know about you, but I am. Paul says, yeah, I think I am too. And at midnight, they said, let's go ahead and praise God. And the Bible says at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and they sang what? Praises unto God. You know what I think they forgot? Somewhere between 6 o'clock and midnight, I think they forgot that God was the God of the valleys. They were all set to praise God when they were casting out devils. They were all set to praise God when they were winning folks to Christ. They were all set to praise God when the crowds thronged them to hear them preach. But the moment they were beaten and thrown in prison and locked up in the stockades and their backs were stinging from the beating of the soldiers, they had a little pity party. You ever do that? Amen. You know what we do? We forget. We become like the Syrians. And we say... God of love would never allow this to happen. Let me tell you this. It doesn't mean that God did it. It just means that God's going to be there to go through it with you. And I want you to notice what took place the instant they began to praise God. It says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. You want to know something? God could have done that at six o'clock. But he didn't do it till midnight. God could have done that at 7 o'clock. Or God could have done that at 8 o'clock. Or God could have done that at 9 o'clock. You say, well, why did God wait till midnight? Because Paul and Silas didn't praise him until midnight. That's why. And some of you precious folks sitting in this room tonight, either as a church or as a family or as an individual, you find yourselves going through a midnight hour. You find yourselves smarting with some kind of a setback or a reversal. You find yourselves not on the mountaintop. You find yourself struggling in the valley somewhere and you can't get your eyes off the trouble and get them on Christ. I'm here to tell you it's time that God's people got to praising God again. Practice right now. Do you good. You say, were there any others in the Bible who kind of got a little bit discouraged and backslidden like that? I want you to turn to the book of Job, if you will. You say, I know about Job. That's my, I've claimed that whole book as my life's book. I know how you feel. <laughs> I've added a couple of chapters. <laughs> 
But I want you to notice something about Job. He's a great man of God. As a matter of fact, he was so great that God said, God said, look, look down there, my servant Job. That's a good man down there. I mean, I wonder how many of you in this room, God would say, go ahead and put some hurt on that guy. He'll stay faithful. I think God would kind of say, don't go to that guy, devil. He'll turn against me. But he said, Job's all right. And you know the story, I'll not belabor the point, how that the devil went to, went to the Lord and they were arguing over this thing. And uh, the Lord says, now my servant Job down there is a good man. The devil says, oh, the only reason Job serves you is because he has everything in the world. He's one of the most wealthy men uh, that recorded in the Bible. He's got all kinds of material things and he's got a, a good business going. If you let me put some hurt on that fellow down there, he won't serve you any longer. And so the Lord said, all right, go ahead. That brings us down to Job 1, uh, Job chapter 1, verse 14. It says, there came a messenger unto Job. The devil then had permission of the Lord to uh, do some things about Job's material possessions. It says, there came a messenger to Job. And he said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Bless that guy's heart that came in with the tidings of rotten news. So many times I've gotten ready to walk through the door to come on the platform to preach and someone will come back and her face is dragging on the ground and they're stepping on their face and someone else is stepping on it too and they got a floor burn on their chin and they say, well, preacher, I just don't know. You don't know what? Don't know if I ought to tell you or not. Don't know whether to tell me what or not. Well, I love you anyway. What are you talking about? And then they spill their guts out. You've got to walk out there and preach after you've heard that uh, all this stuff's going wrong against you. The devil always makes sure that somebody's remaining alive alone to tell you the problems. <laughs> Here came this guy saying, Whoa, well, got problems. Got problems everywhere. Problems. And Job says, What do you got going here, buddy? He says, All your oxen and your donkeys are all dead, and your servants are all uh, dead, and I only am remained alive to tell you. Job's kind of scratching his head, wondering how he's going to get a tax write off from losing all of his oxen and uh, all of his donkeys and so forth. And uh, man, that's a part of his empire just fell. And the Word of God says, While he was yet speaking, the guy didn't even finish filling his guts yet, here came another fellow. He says, while he was yet speaking, there came also another, and he said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am remained alive to tell thee. This guy had a misunderstanding. Number one, it was not the fire of God. Amen? God had nothing to do with consuming those sheep and those servants down there. The devil did that. And I'm here to tell you tonight, I'm sick and tired of a brother in Christ going through some kind of struggle and somebody saying, well, he must have some sin in his life somewhere. Of course we do. When did you get your resurrection body? But it's not always God that does the thing that we say God did. I imagine God in heaven sits here and says, don't blame that on me. Good night. Have you ever have you ever done something or have you ever had somebody come and accuse you of doing something you didn't do? Makes you mad. I wonder how God feels tonight. He said, the fire of God. God said, that wasn't my fire. Now if my fire came, you'd know it. <laughs> and the fire of God, they said, this this guy said, the fire of God fell. By the way, I want you to always know this. The guys that come to get you discouraged usually will distort the truth. They'll say, everybody said. Who's everybody? Well, my wife. (laughs) 
Lord help you. But he came and he said, the fire of God fell. And here's old Job sitting there saying, man, what in the world is going on? And the Bible says, while he was yet speaking. Can you imagine it? Can you, man, that'd be like getting a right and a left and kicked in the stomach and beat over the head of the sledgehammer and you're having to recover. Here comes another guy says, while he was yet speaking, there came also another said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels, have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. I only am remained alive to tell thee. Here came another old weasel in to get him all discouraged while he was yet speaking there came also another and said thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house and behold there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead and I only am escaped alone to tell thee you say, well, Job must have flipped out. I would imagine Job just said, that's it. He threw down his Schofield Bible and he, he said, I'm not going to go to church anymore and I'm not going to run the bus route anymore and I quit the choir. If God to do that kind of thing to me, I'm not going to serve God anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, Job did not forget that God is the God of the valleys as well as the God of the mountains. Look what he did. You say, what did Job do? What did he do? Well, look what he did. It says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Wow. Am I talking to a man or a woman or a boy or a girl or a teenage young person in this room this evening? And you say, Preacher, you don't know the trouble I've seen. I mean, your favorite song is that song. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And by the way, that may be true. Maybe, Pastor, I uh, cannot truly understand your heartache, though I identifies with you. Maybe your best friend cannot truly understand your heartache. But let me remind you, there is a God of the valleys that knows what you're going through. And He'll help you through it. You say, well, preacher, Job didn't do what Paul and Silas did. Why don't you use him as an example? Uh, we're not through yet. Look at Job chapter 2 and beginning at verse number 4. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. In other words, the devil came back and the Lord said, Hey, Job didn't give in, did he? And the devil said, Well, that's only because I took away his material things. If you let me hurt his body, you'll see how fast he turns against you. And the Lord said, Okay, go ahead and do anything you want to, but don't kill him. Can't have his life. Look what happened. So went, verse 7, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. In other words, Job could not stand without standing on boils. Job could not sit without sitting on boils. Job could not lie upon his side without lying down upon boils. Job could not lie upon his stomach. He couldn't get in any position at all that he was not in pain. So the Bible said that he took some broken pottery and began to scrape the boils from his body in terrible agony. You say that must have been enough to make Job cuss against God. I want you to notice what happened. Look at verse number 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. One of Job's biggest problems was his wife. She didn't come by and say, Oh, honey, let me get some... I don't know what you put on it. Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> rub that on your boils. I don't know what you rub on stuff. Maybe get some kind of salve and rub it on the boils. Is there anything I can do to help? Uh, she was not a help. She came by and she said, Well, Job, have you retained your integrity? Just cuss God and die. Well, I don't want my wife wanting me to die. 
say, why did she want him to die? He had just taken out a life insurance policy. I don't know. She said, die. I like what he said. He said to her in verse 10, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women. <laughs> Any husband ever feel like saying that to your wife? Don't raise your hand. You'll be in trouble. <laughs> Wives, close, bow your head and close your eyes. Every wife. Husbands, raise your hands. <laughs> Bunch of cowards. <laughs> he said, You talk like a foolish old woman. He said, What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, did not Job sin with his lips? Isn't that wonderful? He said, man, I've lost everything. Everything I own is gone, but he worshiped God. He's sitting there trying to scrape all the sores off. He's in tremendous agony, and he did not sin against God. What was it that brought him down? Look at verse 11. It says, Job had three friends that heard of all this evil that was come upon him. And they came to visit him. The Bible says, they said, let's go down and see Job and let's encourage his heart. Let's sort of rally around behind him and encourage him. And the Bible says, but as they got close enough, in verse 12, they lifted up their eyes afar off and they knew him not. That didn't mean that they hadn't seen him in so long they didn't recognize him. It means that he was in such a physical, uh, awful shape that his body, he didn't even look like Job. And they said, my, is that Job? If that's Job, it says, they lifted up their voice and they wept and they rent everyone his mantle and they sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven and they sat down upon the ground for seven days around Job and they did not say one word to him for seven days. That's what took Job down into the pits of despair. He lost everything he had, but he worshiped God. His wife told him to die, but he didn't sin. But when his friends came, and by their silence, they were implying, Job, you deserve what you've got. We're just going to sit here and watch with you. And for seven days, they sat there in a semi-circle, in a circle around Job, looking at him without saying a word. And Job said, look, I could take it when I lost everything. I could even take my wife nagging because she's been nagging all my life anyhow. But when my friends will not even raise one finger to encourage me, that's it. I'm finished. By the way, let me say this. I may not need to say it, but I want to say it. I think this is the kind of church that probably does this anyhow, but I just want to go on record with this. Ladies and gentlemen, you rally around this man right here, and you see to it that he has no discouragement without you coming by to lift up the arms of God's man. So many times preachers could stand the battle if somebody would just come by and say, Preacher, I love you. So many times a preacher could stay at it and say, man, the mountain, the obstacles seem like they're absolutely uh, beyond uh, my being able to reach over them for victory. But if somebody would come and say, preacher, I love you. I stand with you. I pray for you. How can I help? They make it through. But I know preacher after preacher after preacher that tonight, right this very moment, they're selling used cars somewhere or they're in the insurance business and they're not preaching the gospel because in a time of need, nobody came by their side and said, may I help? And that's inexcusable. I'm not scolding you. I'm just making, I'm just, I, if you've got any tendency in your heart to watch somebody suffer in silence, you get right with God tonight. If you've got a wife who's suffering, man, you rally by her side, men, and you help her. 
If you've got a child that's suffering tonight spiritually and they're going through a difficult time, as so many of our teenagers do in this modern day in which we live, you rally by their side and don't you just sit there and fold your arms and watch them suffer. Do something about it. Job couldn't stand it. When they were silent, they sat there and looked at him. Look what happened to Job. Job 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. And he lost everything he had and he worshipped God. He was covered with burdensome boils. But he did not sin. But when he got no support from anybody at all, he said, this is it. I can't take it. I cursed the day I was born. What happened to Job? He got so far down the valley, he lost sight of God for a few minutes. Job chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 20, 30, 40, 41. From Job chapter 3 through Job chapter 41, Job spilled his innards out in discouragement. Listen to some of it. Verse number 3 of Job 3. Let the day perish wherein I was born and the night in which it was said there is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for the night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come uh, to the number of months. Lo, let the night be solitary. Let no joyful voice be heard. Job was down in the pits of despair. And he stayed there until Job chapter 42. Turn to Job 42 and let me show you something. I love this. God's been so gracious in showing this to me in the past days. Job chapter 42, please. Job kind of came back to his senses for a while. And he re-evaluated where he was. And verse number 1 of Job 42 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. In other words, Job suddenly sat back and he says, Hold it! From Job chapter 3 all the way through Job chapter 41, I've been bellyaching. I've taken my eyes off God. Like the Assyrians, I've said, God is the God of the mountains, but He's not down here in the valley with me. And suddenly Job says, wait a minute. I believe God can do anything. Do you believe that tonight? Amen? Let me ask you a question. When you get discouraged and honest, Reversal comes into your life. Maybe you lose your home. Maybe you lose your automobile. Maybe you lose your health. Maybe you lose all your material possessions. Maybe even your friends have turned their back upon you. Let me remind you of something. Job said, God, you can do anything. And he can. And that's not all he said. In verse number 6 it says, Wherefore I abhor myself. And repent in dust and ashes. He repented. Ladies and gentlemen, we need an old-fashioned return to a mourner's bench on behalf of Christianity today. I'm so sick and tired of this flippant, I can do what I want to do and get away with it and come back to God uh, the same way I left and no price to be paid and no repentance. That's a bunch of baloney. The Word of God says if we're to be on the right, right side of God and to have His blessing, ladies and gentlemen, we must be repentant of our wrong. 
And Job says, wait a minute, from Job 3 through Job 41, I've been belly aching. He said, God, I abhor myself. I repent. By the way, his repentance was public. He didn't get in the closet and say, God, I'm sorry. He sat down in ashes and rent his clothes and poured dirt on his head. And he said, God, I abhor myself and I repent. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've got a public sin, you better have a public repentance. Our pulpits are full today of pastors that are less than honest and pastors that are less than decent in their morals and pastors that are less than admirable in their, uh, in their motives. And let me just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we need an old-fashioned return in our churches, in our pulpits, in Christianity. I wonder if God came back today and gathered all of Christendom together in one spot and could reveal to our hearts in a forced kind of fashion what kind of Christians you and I really are. How would we stack up against the things? have an idea many of us would find ourselves between 6 o'clock and midnight. Many of us would find ourselves between Job chapter 3 and Job chapter 42. You say, what was the result of Job saying, I see God again in all of his glory? What was the result of Job saying, I repent in sackcloth and ashes? Look at verse 10. It says, The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Can I just remind you of something? God could have given Job twice as much as he had before in Job chapter 3, or 10, or 30, or 40. But when did it happen? It happened when he started praising God. I'm so tired of the self-defeatist attitude of we get down to the mully grubs and we're no longer on the top and things aren't maybe as successful as they used to and the job is now gone or the income is, is lessened or the, uh, the savings account is gone or the home is in jeopardy of going back to the mortgage company or somebody that used to love me now doesn't love me and maybe I've lost someone who's close to me or my health is now suffering. I'm trading God in for a pity party. No, sir. You start praising God, and at midnight, God sends the miracle of the earthquake to shake you loose from your uh, bands and set you free from your prison. In Job chapter 42, God says, Look, I know you suffered, and I know that once you were on the mountaintop, and you once had all the success that the world has ever seen, and you were plunged for a while down into the valley, but when you started praising my name, twice as much is now yours. Unfortunately, he had the same wife. Unless God gave him her twin sister also. I don't think that happened. He got twice as much. That'd be twice as bad. And Job praised God. I want to show you quickly one thing, and I don't want to belabor this point, but I want you to turn to the book of Second Chronicles. I want you to see a statement made in Second Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 1, and then show you something out of chapter 29, and we'll be finished tonight. Chapter 28 of Second Chronicles says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. Let me tell you what Ahaz did. Ahaz shut up the doors of God's house. Ahaz boarded the entrances shut. God's house now became a place for the inhabitants of lizards and snakes and roaches and centipedes. 
That place where men and women used to go in and watch the high priest come out of the Holy of Holies and uh, say, God has accepted the sacrifice and we've had a propitiation for our sin offered and God has accepted the sacrifice. And the sound of the trumpet was sounded for sound of joy. Now suddenly for 16 years, nobody had walked in the doors of God's house save for the creeping insects of the land. Israel was depressed. They were sad. They were defeated. Ahaz had led them into idolatry worship. Ahaz had led them into going into the groves and worshiping the false gods of that day. And Ahaz died. And it brings us to First Chronicles 29. I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 29. Hezekiah, his son, began to reign when he was five and twenty years old, and he reigned nine and twenty years. Now notice what happened when Hezekiah took over. It says, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. In other words, this nation had been down in the valley. This nation had, had now been plunged down where man had never tread before in those recent days of history. Their joy was gone. Their lilt was gone. Their exuberance was gone. Why? Because of sin, God's house being boarded up and uh, filled with filth and treachery. And Hezekiah said, wait a minute, I'm going to do that which is right in the sight of God. What did he do? Verse number four. He brought in the priest and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street. And he said unto them, hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of this place. I'm here to tell you that traveling around the country and having pastored now in some capacity, either as a staff member or full-time pastor uh, since 1974, let me tell you this. I've seen the lives of men and women and boys and girls and young people absolutely ruined by the filth of this world. I've seen men whose lives have been ruined because they turned from the holiness of God and chased after women and they feasted their eyes upon that which they should not look upon and they fed drugs into their veins that should not be taken. And they've said things that ought not to be spoken. They've listened to that to which they should not have listened. And their lives have been ruined. You say, how am I going to get back to the God of the, of the mountains? How am I going to get the joy of the Lord back? How am I going to have the midnight hours shake me loose from the wickedness that I am now enslaved in? How am I going to get from Job chapter 3 to Job chapter 42? Notice this. They gather together, verse 15 of that same chapter. They gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and came according to the commandments of the king by the word of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness and they found in the temple of the Lord, in the court, in the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad into the brook Kedron. There was so much filthiness there, they threw it in the creek so they would carry away the debris. Verse 27. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And now look at this. Praise God. This is wonderful. When the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. For 16 years they had not sung the praises of Zion. For sixteen miserable years, no amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For sixteen years, no glory to God. 
For 16 years, no praise the Lord. For 16 years, no song of joy. But the moment the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. In other words, when they started praising God, God blessed. So often someone comes and says, Pastor, why am I not happy? Things look terrible. My home's a wreck. My children are rebelling. And I just don't feel like God loves me anymore. Do you know what's wrong with you? It's somewhere between 6 o'clock and midnight, brethren. And you better hasten to 12 o'clock and start praising God. It's somewhere between Job chapter 3 and Job 42, brethren. And you better hasten to Job chapter 42 and verse number 10. And you better give God the glory. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNBBC.com for Christian music you can trust.